Welcome to the Experts Only podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital, where we explore the intersection of energy, innovation and finance. Our host is Clean Capital's co-founder and former Federal Chief Sustainability Officer, John Powers. Learn how Clean Capital is revolutionising clean energy finance and find more episodes at cleancapital.com, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Welcome to Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. Today we're talking to Alicia Seiger, the Deputy Director of Stanford Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance. We're really going to explore sort of the evolution of some of the academic thinking on climate and finance, but also, you know, Alicia has been a real leader at helping to drive investors into investing in the climate space. Actually, she wrote a recent paper and argued that the business case for acting on climate change has never been stronger and never more urgent. So we look forward to exploring this with her. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us here at Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. Really looking forward to talking about some of the things that you're seeing at Stanford, focusing on the, the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. But really wanted to start off before getting into that and really explore a little bit of your personal journey in the space. You've had an interesting career that's gone from foundations to NGOs to the investor side, and obviously now working at an amazing university. Can you talk a little bit about your career and how you ended up where you are today? Sure. I can trace it back actually to my freshman year in college for a standard writing course requirement. I was charged with reading Earth in the Balance and was really struck by what Al Gore articulated in that book and transfixed by the challenge of harmonizing human and natural systems. And that was early enough in my college days that I was actually able to shape my curricular experience around it, did a program where I could design my own major and put together a major in basically combining environmental science and policy and cultural anthropology and was able to write a thesis pursuing intellectual property rights for indigenous peoples as a means of preserving cultural and biological diversity, which I thought was really cool and interesting at the time. But (laughs) when I got out, I realized it was really hard to find work at that (laughs) or at least that would pay you anything. Fortunately, I was from the Bay Area. I came back here and got in early on the first sort of wave of tech innovation, or I should say internet innovation. And found that I really loved and thrived in an entrepreneurial environment and was taken by sales and business development roles and sort of thrived in that space. But at the time I was, I spent that chapter working for an internet advertising company and keeping the internet free wasn't quite enough of a mission for me to feel sated, at least the side of me that really wants to work for passion. So I actually left that post and went and pursued my MBA at Stanford and wrote my admissions essay actually on finding the intersection of sustainability and entrepreneurship and developing market-based solutions for environmental problems and seeing business school as a path towards being able to do that on my own as an entrepreneur, which is where I knew I liked to be. I'm one of the few fascinating to go back and reread that today. Yeah, actually doing what they said they wanted to do. (laughs) But it was hard when I graduated from business school, they're really, clean tech hadn't really begun in earnest. There were few opportunities for entrepreneurship and impact to come together. So I, I stuck around, wrote case studies for a couple of years at the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies here at Stanford, and then finally found that intersection at a company called TerraPass, which was one of the early pioneers of the carbon offset industry, the voluntary offset market in the US. And then after birth of my first child, wanted to 
changed my pace a little bit having a startup at home. I didn't need also one during the day. Right. So I started working as an independent consultant for foundations and NGOs and family offices, picking up projects around climate and energy strategy broadly. And that's where I really saw a disconnect between best intentions of philanthropy and sort of the scale and scope of the need. So when I had seen the Steyer Taylor, the announcement of the Steyer Taylor Center, and having both gone to Stanford and then worked at the Center for Entrepreneurial Studies, I knew that these centers could be really interesting places to affect change. And so I lobbed a pitch in there and started in as a consultant and, and have been here now five years. Talk a little bit about what the center does. Sure. The center is a joint initiative of the business school and the law school. Our mission is to explore and develop economically sensible policies and financial mechanisms to scale up financing for deep decarbonization globally. Bit of a mouthful, I realize, but right. but and, and the mission, way, to, but it's a right, right. But the way I think about centers, particularly at Stanford, is that they're really in their best form a bridge between academics and markets. So they all have you know an anchor of a faculty member, but they're able to bring in practitioners who want to spend some time thinking deeply about really critical issues in interdisciplinary fields and developing thought leadership to bring back to the market, but also to bring to the campus community. And I think about this role is actually a continuation of my entrepreneurial path. And in this case, I'm able to leverage the assets of Stanford University, including faculty and students and alumni and the physical plant and the megaphone and, and convening power we have to develop and deploy climate solutions. So in your experience at Stanford, not just at the center, but going back to even being a student, right? How have you seen the students' interest change in climate and and energy, and then also in parallel in finance and getting them interested in climate and energy. Yes, I actually saw Al Gore speak here in 2005, and at that time, you know, there was certainly interest among students in sustainability issues, but sort of finding the right channel for it. I'd say a couple of things in particular have evolved. One, kind of the language and specificity around how to develop curriculum and programming that advances solutions and learnings in climate and energy has evolved. So it was right. you know, from sustainability, although I think in some ways it has come back to sustainability as in the nomenclature, and sort of thinking of things as environmental issues to an appreciation that climate is not an environmental issue, but in fact a macroeconomic and productivity issue. And so it's pervasiveness in terms of approaches to the challenge, it, different avenues and different disciplines to approach the challenge, I think, has evolved. The students themselves are coming in now with deep experience and expertise in related fields and roles. And so, you know, they're not coming out of investment banking and saying, I mean, some are, and saying, I want to use this time to reinvent myself and learn about stuff I had not been exposed to, and then go off and do something completely different. Many of them are coming in having worked in resource-efficient innovations in various stages before coming into to Stanford or working in the energy sector, even in the oil and gas sector, you know, developing knowledge and expertise that they can then redeploy towards innovative solutions on their way out. So the expertise and experience of the students have, has really evolved over time in ways that I continue to be impressed by. So I want to dive in a minute more into some content, some of the stuff you've been, been working on and, and writing about, but just to, to stick with the academic track for a second, when you look across the way things have developed, is there anything you would, you know, if you had the ability to sort of change some of the curriculum within the MBA track or find ways to take 
the folks in the engineering school and the folks pursuing their PhDs and make sure that they understand the, the business side of what they're trying to achieve? What changes would you make? Hmm. I actually spent a fair amount of time thinking about this, although I'm not an academic, but having been a student and being an alum and thinking about these issues deeply, I do think particularly among MBA programs, there's a lot of work to do here. Right. So I think they've captured the themes of social innovation and impact investing and even to some degree and in some programs, sustainability. But those themes are, you know, climate change is so much bigger than that. And an understanding of it shouldn't be confined to the self-selecting good kids who, right. you know, seek out those courses and themes. You know, the motto here at Stanford is change lives, change organizations and change the world. And my the soapbox I like to stand on in response to that is that fulfilling that mission really requires empowering students with knowledge and framework and exposure to the risks and opportunities they're going to face as a result of a changing climate. And that's, you know, regardless of what sector of the economy you're going into, regardless of the role you're going to play. You know, we need to be training 21st century leaders for 21st century challenges. And, and I think we are underdeveloped in that area. And it's something that I'm working on, not because I've been asked to, but because I care deeply about it. And trying to get more curriculum up here at, at the business school, I'm actually going to start teaching a class at the law school that I've designed around some of these issues, although trying to tailor it for a law school audience, which is a challenge for me personally, having never been to law school, although we're going to have slots for other graduate students, so we'll be able to bring in engineering and, and business students into that course. It's a small seminar course. Also really excited about a program that's going to be happening at Duke in the spring that actually the woman, Katie Cross, who's leading that, has reached out to me to help join a planning committee that is doing exactly this, that's trying and working with a coalition of other leading business schools to try and really reinforce this idea that that climate change and climate leadership are central to an MBA curriculum and that students really need to be exposed to these issues, um, develop deeper understanding of the risks and opportunities they're going to confront as a result. Yeah, it's so important for folks to understand that it really permeates everything we're doing, right? When I was working at the Pentagon, one of the things that we were really trying to push down was the effect of climate, whether it be you're talking about the mission in sub-Saharan Africa or in the Pacific rim, or you're talking about building on an installation here in the United States and making sure it's out of the the hundred year floodwater maps, right? Because it mm-hmm. they be completely be rewritten here in the next few decades. So, you know, one other thing I just want to capture, and maybe we can throw this back in somewhere, but you know, you asked a good question about how you navigate sitting at the intersection of academia and finance, because I think it's a tricky intersection to navigate. Yeah. And I just want to say, answer that, you know, with a carefully that I'm always trying to keep in mind the mission of a university and the unique role we can play and the roles we should avoid in terms of sort of trying to do things that the market's going to do more efficiently and effectively. And so we sort of think about that in, in what we just actually I distilled into a tagline for the center, but it's, it's to innovate, teach and connect. So, you know, we come up with good ideas that can be distributed through, you know, traditional channels of peer-reviewed journal articles as a sort of traditional product of academia, but also white papers and, you know, short thought pieces that are easier to disseminate and digest. And then we can, we have a teaching mission, obviously, with the students, but also with practitioners and bringing people together and not only just bringing them together, but bringing them together in a learning posture without any hints of advocacy. You know, that, right. that's the unique role that academia can play. And then I try and keep myself grounded in the real world. I serve on a number of boards and advise companies and students. And, 
do some consulting work just to make sure I'm grounded in what's really happening. Academia can have a tendency to be walled off to what's really going on and, and sort of make the perfect the enemy the good and all those sorts of things. So I, I really try and avoid that. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting having spent some time at Stanford in my uh, some previous roles in Silicon Valley. You know, I think it's really being at that heart of of action out there has made it such a unique community, right? Where whether it be the Hoover Institute or some of the other really, really interesting dialogues that happen on the university are exciting. Yeah, and we're so lucky because everyone, so many people come to us. Right. We can get a very diverse mix of ideas and voices and diverse in terms of viewpoints, but also in terms of geographic diversity and sector diversity and so forth. You know, people come from all over the world and pass through here. So let's change focus a little bit from the pure academic side and talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been focusing on. And I've read some of your recent papers. One I think you published with a good friend of mine, Kate Brandt. It's really exciting to, to look at the message that investors hopefully are hearing about the opportunity in terms of investing in climate, investing in clean energy. You know, I think one of your recent papers, you argue that the business case for acting on climate change has never been stronger and also never been more urgent. And it really does seem like we've crossed a threshold where this went from an issue of doing good or doing well for the planet to now this is about real cost savings for companies. This is about profits. This is about companies that really are driving efficiency through sustainability. Can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the market and why it's uh, this time today is so critical? Yeah, sure. So shout out to Kate, too. Of course. Yeah, let me break it up into, into sort of the two fronts. I mean, one is as far as the evolution, you know, one is the science and impacts. If nothing else, climate change is very good at reminding us of its occurrence. And they're now just a, a relentless sort of onslaught of data to keep it front of mind and top of mind and uh, simple survey of the headlines of the last seven days, both domestically and internationally, will give you that. But a couple of data points I often reference are, you know, 10 hottest years on record since 1998. Hottest year ever was 2016, which shattered the record from 2015, which broke the record of 2014. You get the idea. Right. Another sort of really compelling data point I look to is the sort of so what of that which I then look to the economic impacts of extreme weather. And if you look back, you know, starting before 1990 to 35 years prior, there was an average of one, or excuse me, the average number of billion dollar losses was five per year. And that's globally. In 2016, there were 15 weather and climate related disasters that exceeded a billion dollars in losses in the U.S. alone. Wow. And I mean, we're talk about the last, if you just add up Harvey and Irma, like we're going to be off the, you know, Harvey's already estimating over a hundred billion. We'll see where we end up with Irma. But so the economic impacts of climate and weather disasters are becoming sort of unignorable, both in terms of private sector and also government policy, in terms of how taxpayers are going to have to respond to, to paying for these storms. And then you've got lots more scientific data that we could go through. I'm not an atmospheric scientist, and there's plenty of data out there, and, and I frankly don't want to spend a lot of time on that debate. But those are, those are my two favorite statistics for just setting the stage on the science and impacts. The market evolution is really interesting. I look to summer of 2012 as a big turning point or start of the dominoes falling with Bill McKibben's Rolling Stone article, the Ter Global Warming's Terrifying New Map. And what that did, you can sort of watch these dominoes fall. It really started the divestment movement, which in turn started a conversation among CIOs that hadn't been taking place before. 
you know, forced that conversation. But in forcing that conversation, I think a couple of things happened. One, you had some people that were really compelled by the morality of it and started to get way more proactive than they would have otherwise, looking for economic arguments, but also starting to make decisions just purely based on moral values. But it also ignited a, a series of efforts that started to really quantify the economic impacts and great work from folks like Two Degree Investing Initiative and CDP that started to really do the math on stranded assets, make the economic case for the oil and gas sector. And then you had the Risky Business Report come out that really made the economic case for the whole U.S. economy. And so you started to hear, you know, instead of Bill McKibben's voice, you're getting Mark Carney's voice and Mike Bloomberg's voice and two former U.S. Treasury Secretary's yeah. voice, you know, sounding the alarm bell. That's a big change in four years. In the middle of that, you had, or towards the end, I should say, you had, you had the Paris Agreement. And you started to really see an evolution of leadership and data and sort of action around markets at a scale and scope that you really hadn't seen before. And that has you know, the dominoes are down. Now. Right. Um, and one of the things I've observed that I sort of find interesting about this, and then I, I think about it from the investor perspective and sort of track progress of different types of asset owners. And one of the things I find interesting is folks that kind of started with the environmental posture and coming at it even from even the moral side or just as sort of thinking of climate as an environmental issue have in some ways been slower to act than those who've just been looking at the data yeah. <laughs> or the numbers. You know, and you're seeing case in point, like you're seeing BlackRock and Vanguard and, and these big institutional investors that aren't acting on moral grounds, making tremendous steps and strides in terms of mandating climate risk disclosure and publishing reports and voting proxies to a degree that's even sort of bolder than what you'll see from some university and foundation endowments. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like with the university endowment side, right? where there's the invest the divest movement has been incredibly powerful and it's driven by so many different factors which involve students and alumni and you know I think there's a obviously a strong case to be made for that to happen but a lot of them have struggled to make the next step which is the invest step mm -hmm. right which is like we understand why we should be divesting from these fossil fuels but why are clean energy projects actually a very solid investment to be making you see insurance companies and others, full disclosure, clean capital. We have John Hancock, the life insurance company invested in a lot of our projects. They see the long-term potential of these deals and recognize the great cash flow involved. And as you said, BlackRock, Vanguard, and others are starting to come along. How do we take those divesters and move them to the next step? Yeah, such a good question. And we spent a lot of time thinking about this at the center of launched actually an investor roundtable series called Investing in New Climate to help bring asset owners together by cohort to talk about this stuff. One of the things I've observed that I just find fascinating and frustrating at the same time, and it gets back to my origin story, but it's the cultural anthropology side. It's sort of the people problems. You've got, particularly for lar you know, endowments, large asset owners that are supposed to be acting like long-term investors, you know, they're organized in a fund-to-fund model. They've been operating a certain way for decades where they're looking, you know, they're picking managers based on track records, right. um, among standing relationships, where they're being forced to confront really new ways of thinking about resources and resource efficiency and availability and new risk factors and data sources and tools and strategies for managing that. 
And yet they're still very much stuck in the 10, 15 year track record model. That and it needs to be a two and 20 closed end fund because that's right. how what I know how to, you know, give me the product that looks exactly like all the other products I buy. Make it easy that for is, me. You know, that's run by someone who's been doing it for 10 years. And you can't. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work. You need their new teams, you know, with new experiences. They, they're not going to have that 10 year track record because it's new. And the models that worked for other asset classes don't work for these themes and types of assets. They demand new models. Sometimes they do work, but oftentimes it demands new models. So you're sort of recognizing the need for change, but have institutional and sort of human capital barriers that are preventing, forget sort of incentive structures and governance that are preventing this, the, scale and speed of transformation on the invest side that is required. Yeah, it's interesting going back to your Bill McKibben comment earlier about the dominoes beginning to fall. It'll be interesting to see now. I think was really exciting is post-Trump administration, not to make this political by any means, but the Trump administration's pull out of Paris announcement, right, where all of a sudden you had literally hundreds of companies mm -hmm. come forth and say, wait a minute, we're not doing this because of Paris. We're doing this because this makes awesome economic sense, whether we're Google or Apple or GE or whoever. We're making these major commitments because this is great for our bottom line. Hopefully that business case now begins to permeate with some of those fund managers, those endowment managers. But it's still going to be a little bit of a, a long haul to get there. And I think you know the work you guys are doing is going to be really important to continue to educate them and drive them to action because okay. it's that capital that will continue to make the game-changing efforts we need to accelerate clean energy, for instance, worldwide, or accelerate efforts on water. If we have to keep going to those 2 and 20 managers who have crazy hurdle returns, these projects aren't going to get done at the scale that we need. Them. Right. And your comment makes, raises another thought for me, and I think it's really important. And I just fell in the trap of or sort of talking about investment in terms of funds, which sort of leads you down the thought that it's just clean tech venture capital that's going to get us out of this, which is not what I meant to suggest. And there's plenty of types of private equity fund model, you know, whether you're into the right. really early stage stuff or growth or whatever. And there are, you know, I articulated the challenges there in terms of fund of funds management. But let me also now make a plug for disclosure, because I think what you said is exactly right in terms of the response from the business community to Trump's pull out of Paris. And I, and I think that is a very encouraging sign. And you're seeing leadership on this issue in, in a way we hadn't seen before, which I based on economic arguments, which I think is, is a really positive trend. But the challenge for those CEOs and for the market in general is that we don't have good data on which companies are, are future-proofing. And so, you know, the CEOs are making compelling and fact-based arguments that it is in their economic self-interest to respond to climate and become climate resilient, invest in opportunities, mitigate, manage risk. But we're, we're hamstringing them by not providing their investors with data to separate the leaders from the laggards. And so the work of the F the G20, FSB, TCFD, if I can throw down a bunch of acronyms we can clean up later, <laughs> you know, is so critical. And people are, the economic arguments are as good, as strong as they've ever been. The science and impacts are as compelling and terrifying as they've ever been. And we're just making it harder for ourselves by not creating the transparency we need in the market to track these risks and price them and reward the companies that are investing in resilience. And it's something that the change in administration has a significant impact on because you saw the march towards a full G20 adoption of the TCFD recommendations 
now you have a G19 adoption of those recommendation or, or endorsement at least, and it's going to kind of fall back on the private sector to try and create synthetic and voluntary engagement to get to that data. And one of the bright lights I see in all this, and I see this on campus and in my travels with practitioners, is you're seeing a lot of really cool innovation around data and disclosure with throwing down more acronyms, but with AI and machine learning and satellite imagery and sort of ways to provide actionable data for investors on companies and assets vis-a-vis climate risk and exposure. And I think you're going to see a proliferation of software tools and software as a service offerings and consultancies that are going to try and help investors do this while we wait for our federal government to implement consistent rules of the road. So, you know, I challenge our listeners to go in Google Stanford's Social Innovation Review, and you can find Alicia's article on businesses and investors and the need for to act on climate now. It's a great, I think, overview of some of the stuff that we've talked about today, and I think, you know, a really important piece to help drive the conversation. And, you know, Alicia, I thank you for the taking the time today. I wanted to ask, so we have a standard final question here for folks. And if you could go back to yourself when you were graduating before you went and sold internet heads and could have a conversation coming out of college or coming out of high school, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Sure. I'll be succinct. I'd say, you know, figure out what you care most about and what you're really good at and then find the best people you can to go pursue those things with. And it'll all make sense in the review mirror and objects are closer than they appear. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time and look forward to seeing you in person here in the near future. Thank you. This was fun. Absolutely. Thank you to Alicia Seiger for joining us at Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. Challenge each and every one of you to go to cleancapital.com and download and see our latest episode. I want to send a quick thank you to our producers, Lauren Glickman and Emily Connor, for their work. And ask you to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating. And if you have any thoughts on who else we should be interviewing, feel free to submit those to us at podcast at cleancapital.com. Thanks.